Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Squat Cobbler, episode 67. I'm Kelly Tool at K-E-L-L-Y-T-H-U-L on Twitter. And I'm Mike at Official Pagan on everything. And tonight, based on, and we love it when we get requests uh, from folks that are listening to Mike and I ramble on and on about music, uh, Mick had requested, he's he'd gone through a lot of our Alice stuff, and he requested that we review Billion Dollar Baby's Battle Axe, which was the original Alice Cooper group, uh, Les Glenn Buxton, one and only release <laughs> and, uh, in uh, 1977. So we are more than happy uh, to go do our track-by-track run of this album. Before we get started, Mike, did you want to go on a tangent on anything? <laughs> did you want to give you room to do what you like to do? Um, so, all right, you mentioned this, that this album existed when we were doing our reviews and you had brought up a couple of times, you know, various side projects from Alice Cooper group members. I of course was aware that this stuff existed, but I never actually listened to this album until now. So first off, thank you for suggesting this Mick. That's awesome that you did because it gave me an opportunity to really sit down and listen to this for the first time again sort of aware in a tangential sense that this existed but it was nice to really sit down and listen to it that being said i didn't really love it spoiler alert (laughs) but i am looking forward to talking it out with kelly kelly and i didn't really delve into this beforehand i had a couple of issues though so from what i can tell This was only released on vinyl. It's not available on any streaming services. So I had to listen to a rip from the vinyl on YouTube. And unfortunately, the track listing wasn't super accurate. So going through a proper track list that I have in front of me now, I think some tracks might have been lumped together or missing. So I'm going to do my best as Kelly Sherpas us through this to make sense of my notes to the actual proper track listing of this. But thank you to whoever uploaded that vinyl rip, so at least I got to listen to it. I'm very curious to hear your experience with this album, Kelly, and how you, I I assume just as an Alice Cooper fan, came across it, but you mentioned that you have the vinyl. I do have have the vinyl, and it's wondrous cover. Oh, yeah, I want to talk about the cover when I I get there. (laughs) I I desperately wanted to love this album uh, because, I mean, it was the original Alice Cooper group, and... They were as much a part of all the greatness that was the original Alice Cooper group as Alice was. I tried super hard to be in love with it. <laughs> and there are moments that I like on it, but but I'm sure we'll get into. You'll, you'll see a lot of times in reviews where they'll talk about the group misses Alice almost as much as he misses them in the early recordings. And that will be a theme we'll get in there that this actually might have gone over better if somebody else was handling some of the vocals on some things. But we'll we'll, we'll get into that. But you talked about the recording. So there is this kind of prime on YouTube, this one ripped copy that seems to be the, the one place you can go to, to listen to the album online. Its recording history has kind of um, it's kind of rich in that the original pressing for Billion Dollar Babies, they really had no luck in a lot of fronts here. The original pressing was so poor that the album skipped repeatedly and they had to get repressed in return. So their coming out of the gate was not a really great experience to begin with. The people were buying the album and it just it wouldn't work. I don't believe it's ever been recorded digitally. Uh, I don't think there's a CD version out there. There is, however, a Billion Dollar Babies Battle Act Live in Flint, Michigan CD out there. That contains the original. I, it used to be out there. I think it's actually been taken down from all sites. I'm not 100% sure. But it had the original recording 
it had demos, and then it had actually a live performance in Flint, which had to be a tricky one to get because this tour was only four cities long before they packed it in because it's a pretty complicated stage show involved roller skates and the arena battles. And so four, four performances of the battle axe. So you get that recording. You get demos, which seem to be kind of shadily acquired, but the CD version remastered is clearly a vinyl rip. <laughs> so... So it's got kind of interested recorded history. Interesting. Yeah, I, I couldn't find, I mean, it wasn't available on any streaming services. And, you know, maybe this is an issue, a rights thing, whoever owns these recordings, whoever owns the publishing of it. But, I mean, just for curiosity's sake alone, you would think something like this would be more widely available because of its Alice Cooper Group pedigree. You would think. But nope. So as we often do, before we go delve through the album, we talk about the album art. Kind of spoiled there a little bit. That So this is clearly 70s fantasy armored guy with a guitar that is doubles as an axe kind of deal. Lots of bright colors and the stylized Billion Dollar Babies logo in small white lights, which was what was used on the Billion Dollar Babies tour, was their logo, uh, as well as they moved it to become Billion Dollar Babies post-Alice. I think it's definitely a cover that catches your attention. I remember when I was a kid, a couple blocks away was the, the town stoner guy with the creepy van that was airbrushed on the side. This could very well be an image on everybody's childhood stoner guy's van. It is excellent side of van material. I will not give you, I will not question that at all. I absolutely hate the logo. <laughs> Doesn't at all match the imagery that you're seeing. I don't like, if we're going to nitpick the image, other than the fact that it would look amazing on the side of someone's van. Anybody listening to this right now, if you have a van, particularly a van with shag carpet in the back of it, please go and get this airbrushed on the side of your van. <laughs> We will we will use that on something. Send us pictures of it. I promise you we'll use it on something. So that being said, if I'm going to nitpick the actual image itself, I absolutely hate guitar slash axe imagery. Hate it. <laughs> it's been used so many times by such a wide variety of artists. It really, really gets under my skin. So as soon as I saw the cover of this for the first time, I was like, wow, I'm going to hate this. So you wouldn't have liked the live show any better <laughs> because Mike Marconi uh, was the guitarist that replaced Glenn Buxton. And for the show, Michael Bruce and Mike Marconi would come out dressed as the Red Gladiator and the Green Gladiator in attire similar to what's shown on the cover, and they each were sporting clear guitars that were designed in the axe shape uh, for the big battle scene that we'll talk about a little later in this album. Nice. So you probably so, wouldn't have been. <laughs> yeah. Anybody who's listening to this, if you're not sure what I mean, not don't just look at the cover of this. Google guitar axe album cover. Like something that generic. You will see hundreds of variations on that theme. And of course, Gene Simmons guitar. Yeah, as I was going to say, as a as a corporal in the Kiss Army, I figured you'd be very familiar with the Gene Simmons axe guitar. Right. So th this is something that is so overused that I and this is my own personal quibble. Like for anybody who thinks this is a cool retro style image, I get it. And like I said, on the side of somebody's van, this would look awesome. If this was a T-shirt, if it didn't have the guitar axe, it was just that weird retro armor guy i would probably wear that i am just so sick of the guitar axe image and i know that this is a late 70s recording 
So at the time that this came out, it probably wasn't as overdone as it is now. I'm sure I, I'm not saying they were the first ones to do it. Just that, you know, now with decades under our belt after this, so many people have done this. I just really hate that imagery. That's my own personal thing, though. Does it help it at all that the stage was set up as a large boxing ring? Does that help? No. It actually, you know what? It might. I've I've been to a show recently. Um, so I don't know if they're still using this stage setup. So I'm not going to talk about the band because I don't want to spoil the show for anybody. But there's a band who is, does very theatrical shows. Every tour they do, they change up the stage show, and they had a wrestling ring as part of their stage show, and it was really cool the way that they utilized that in the show. So I may have actually enjoyed the theatrical elements of that. But if they came out with the axe guitars, it, it, it would have definitely been a, a check in the con column for me. Yeah, and this, that's the other really kind of interesting thing about this album, because, in fact, this was the concept for the next Alice Cooper Group album. Really? Uh, yep. What had, what had happened is they did Muscle of Love, and you know they had released both Billion Dollar Babies, greatest Alice Cooper album of all time, Billion Dollar Babies, and uh, then Muscle of Love, both in 73. So they're touring, big Billy Dar Babies tour. They release Muscle of Love. They're all pretty exhausted. They're kind of sick of each other. And so Michael Bruce was making noises about doing a solo album. Neil Smith was making noises. And the management's like, well, if you guys go do one, Alice is going to probably do one too. And so around 75, Michael Bruce does something. Alice obviously comes out with Welcome to My Nightmare. And I'm confused by this, but I believe Neil Smith, based on what I can tell, recorded platinum god in 75 but i believe it was actually released in 99 <laughs> so i'm a little I'm, I'm a little i'm a little thrown by that as i was going it's like really because i kept seeing platinum god in 1999 i'm like no he did it in 75 so they went off they didn't ever officially like break up they went off and did their solo stuff and then dennis dunaway and michael bruce got back together in in connecticut to start hammering out the next alice cooper group concept and it was going to be this kind of idea of music battles and of course rock and roll is going to win at the end and so they were coming up with some of these concepts and then alice releases alice cooper goes to hell <laughs> and they go huh i don't think we're a band anymore <laughs> and uh they there was a little bit of frustration because if you read the interviews from alice at that time may not have been a hundred percent honest in that he was saying they went their own ways because the band just wanted to play rock and roll in jeans and they were tired of the theatrics you hear that a lot well, obviously, Billion Dollar Baby's Battle Axe is not light on the theatrics, and no, they fully intended to do that. I think it just became the, the group kind of went their own way. But yeah, this was intended to be, they were starting to work out the concepts. with the When it started off, the assumption was, okay, let's get started on our next album. We'll, you know, I'll also get back here in a little bit. We'll refine it. And so this is going to be the spirit of the album that would have followed Muscle and Love from the original Scooper group. Hmm. You know, so we actually mentioned this before. <clears throat> this is a recurring theme, and I, I think it was when we were talking about the Ace Freely record. This is kind of a recurring theme when you see solo records and side projects and things like that. Are these albums that sort of come out of what was intended to be material for the band or the group as a whole's next project? There's moments, we'll, we'll get through it on this album, that it sure feels to me like this was ramped up to be an Alice Cooper group song. Because not all personnel was available, it didn't quite land. 
great. And with oh. that, we will begin our journey through Billion Dollar Babies. <laughs> so you're trying to cut me off because you know I'm about to launch in in 10 minutes about something that has nothing to do with this album. That's right. We got <laughs> but we get we've got a lot of background and history on Billion Dollar Babies. I think that's I think we that's did, and I've actually I was not able to find that much information when I was searching for this because you know I listened to it, I listened to the YouTube rip of it because I wanted to form my own opinions on it, and then I wanted to get a little more background on the project. There's not a ton of stuff out there. It is hard. Uh, the somewhat suspect Live in Flint, Michigan CD did include some very rare photos, which now have kind of made their way to YouTube. So you get to see a little bit of a shot of what the Gladiator gear might have looked like. But there's no, to my understanding, there's never been any recording of them performing in full tour mode. Now, you know, later they, when the reunion and stuff, there's some things. But in this actual tour, there's hardly any images. There's hardly, there's no video. And there's just not a lot of information on it. One of the few places is Sick Things uh, UK is an outstanding Alice Cooper site. And they probably have what I think are some of the most extensive information about Alice and other things. And they've got a pretty good write-up on Billy Dollar Baby's Battle Axe. So I'll include a link to that in the notes because it's worth a look. But we kick off with Too Young. Right out of the gate, you hear the Alice Cooper group guitars. There's kind of unquestionably that but then you get and there's a couple of moments of shall we call them ace fraley-esque lyrical constructions <laughs> when they're a little limited you know we got i'm x-rated jail baited yeah some of the lyrics in there where you've got michael michael bruce i don't think michael bruce is a, a, a bad singer but his it's there's not a lot of depth to his voice and when it's now kind of coming in as a surrogate for alice uh it's a it's a tough act to follow but like when he's, you know, spitting out the lyrics about mom and dad just keep telling me no and I might as well be dead. He's trying to put punch behind it, but it, he just he can't get that snarl that just comes naturally from Alice. And I think these lyrics could have landed a little better. And I think you could look back to the original Alice Cooper group and see lyrics not dissimilar to this delivered by Alice that just land a lot better than they do when they come from Michael Bruce. Sorry, Michael. And, of course, they keep talking about Can't Wait Till I'm 18, which is obviously a callback. And a very Alice-like outro with the vocals kind of running on at the end. So it's it's not a bad song, but, boy, I just really felt the the vocals didn't carry it. And it wasn't magically musical. So it's okay for me. So I'm probably – I should get this out of the way right up front. I think a lot of the lyrics on this album are a little thin. You can tell – that there are things that could have existed in the Alice Cooper group, but maybe with Alice's delivery and a little bit of punch up from him to add some of the, the clever wordplay that we're used to, it would have landed a lot differently. Like Kelly said, it's not so far out of that realm where, where it feels like you're in this totally different musical universe, but it's just not the same thing. It's, it's kind of like that. But I'm going to get two big musical quibbles out of the way on this record. And ironically, these are two things that I complained about on some of the Alice solo records. There is way too much backing vocals on this thing. Way too much. And the backing vocals are way too high in the mix. There's also too much keyboard on this. A really big problem of records around this time because prog rock was getting really big and people were starting to incorporate synthesizers as more of a major element of their sound not in the way that like so i'm gonna make two black sabbath references on this track not in the way that black sabbath on their early recordings would incorporate synthesizers just to kind of fatten the sound a little bit it's so low in the mix and it's something that's barely audible until someone points it out to you that's kind of 
what they should have gone for and really focus more on their Detroit rock sound. I think there's too much of a, a piano based sort of sound on this record that and the backing vocals. So too much synth and too much backing vocals. That's my one quibble that's going to run through the entire thing. So I'll just get that done now. This track too young in particular, as Kelly mentioned, plays out a lot like a prequel or sequel to 18. The whole thing feels like a callback to remember that big hit we had 18. I'm not sure if that's a good thing, reminding people of a song that clearly performed better now that we have, you know, the time behind this. And as we mentioned, this is not an easy record to find. It almost feels, here's my second Black Sabbath reference, it almost feels a little bit like, I, I joke around with people. So when Black Sabbath reunited with Ozzy Osbourne to do their, what is currently their last album, 13, I did not like that record. I'm a big Black Sabbath fan. Prior to that, they had done one final studio recording with Dio before he passed away. That album was called The Devil You Know. It was good. It wasn't amazing. But I jokingly told people when they asked for my opinion on 13, I said 13 was a really important album because it really made you appreciate how good The Devil You Know actually is. I am not a big fan of 18, even though it's on the greatest Alice Cooper record of all time. I, I think it's the weakest track on that record. Too Young is an important song because it makes me realize how good a song 18 really is. Yeah, I do think, so I think it's great points, that it does seem to be the sequel. I do feel there's a couple songs, and this is, to me, I think probably the, the strongest one, where it was like, we're really looking to kind of, you know, in a laboratory, recreate the Alice Cooper group Bojo on this song. And when one vital ingredient to what that was all about is not there, it falls a little bit flat uh, from, from there. But it just really felt like they were trying hard, whether it's callbacks to 18 or to some of the the structure of the vocals and where they were coming in would have greatly benefited with the Alice snarl. It just kind of falls a little bit flat. So then we move into shine your love. So the good news on shine your love is they pull back from that. So this becomes a more, if you're trying to say, okay, what did the billion dollar babies sound like? This gets away from kind of trying to replicate Alice Cooper group in a laboratory to just an execution of a song. Uh, it's better vocals. It's it, or but the, the vocal itself is better here because it's not Michael Bruce trying to be Alice. Alice, it's Michael Bruce just singing. It does feature pretty significant background vocals, so probably not a big big winner for for Mike on that. Uh, kind of a uh, a chipper, a little more chipper song. Not a bad guitar riff to it. It is a lighter fare by far, but it it benefits by it doesn't seem to be trying so hard to recreate something and it's trying to just kind of stand on its own kind of a light song and again another one that i didn't do backflips over but i did like the fact that this at least felt a little less forced yeah i don't mind the song it does you know forced is is a great way to put too young too young definitely feels forced kelly really nailed it with that one shine your love doesn't feel forced i don't love it my main quibble with it i, I like the guitar riff is good however the song really never builds to anything it seems like in the verse, it's building towards a big chorus, but there's not enough distinction musically. There's not enough of a change up musically between the verse and chorus. It just kind of builds and builds and builds and doesn't really go anywhere. The rhythm section gets a little bit splashier on the chorus, but if it wasn't for the overdone backing vocals, the chorus would almost just fade into the actual main verses of the track. So we'll move on to, so I, I mentioned that I really, really wanted to love this album and I struggled too because it just, there were things that were okay but just there wasn't much that i was like boy i can't wait to hear that again the song on this whole album 
Although we'll talk about the, the very tail end of the album, some parts that are kind of neat about it. But I Miss You, to me, is probably the strongest song on the album. Has Cowbell, that, that always is a big plus from there. It has elements of almost the, uh, and I'm not, I'm not saying this to be a smart guy, Love It to Death era Alice Cooper group. There's hints of that mojo in here. Uh, it's a solid, solid uh, chorus, nice guitar, but it doesn't feel where it was so forced on Too Young. This is more a little bit like, oh yeah, those are the same guys that did um, uh, Love It to Death and Billion Dollar Babies. It at least, this song at least moves along, and I, I found it to be, of everything, probably my most enjoyable moment on the listen. I pretty much agree with everything Kelly said on that. This is by far my favorite song on the album. I got really excited when this one started because I felt like finally this is the alice cooper group the alice cooper group that we love the that's on the the two greatest in order albums love it to death and billion dollar babies from the alice cooper group <laughs> we get a great guitar riff good detroit rock a stronger chorus compared to what we've gotten up until this point this is a really strong song and i got really excited at this point because i was like yes finally the album's really kicking in <laughs> you know we're only going to get great things from here on out yeah <laughs> And then, wasn't I the one? So this is where things get confusing because the the prime uh, available copy of this on YouTube is uh, a rip off of an album. This is not listed. Wasn't I the one's not listed? But it is It is actually on the track listing. Uh, it's a ballad. I know Mike, you know, is a giant Jeff Healy fan. And, I have a tattoo. Uh, yep. And that was the thing I was struck more than anything else. Uh, when, I, when I listened to Wasn't I the One, I go, well, this is Angel Eyes. <laughs> this is basically, it's the same song. Very similar del- vocal delivery and kind of song structure to it. So I guess they predate Angel Eyes. So I guess Jeff Healy ripped off Billion Dollar Babies. But it's it's kind of Angel Eyes, and I wasn't Jeff a big Angel Eyes He was fan. like the one huge Battle Axe fan. <laughs> Man, I've got to, <laughs> this was the guy. He went to half of their shows, two of them. Yeah, it, was the, it was the only track that didn't skip. He bought the original pressing, and this one didn't skip. This is it. So I don't have much to say about it, except it kind of sounds like Angel Eyes, and I don't like Angel Eyes that much. So I didn't catch the Angel Eyes thing, because I'm not as big a Jeff Healy fan as Kelly is. But now that you say that, it makes sense. I listened to the YouTube rip. This is not on that track listing. So I kind of thought that Love is Rather Blind just had a really, really long intro. <laughs> it was like a 10 minute long song. I'm glad that this is actually a separate track. It's kind of forgettable though. And that's really sort of the nicest thing I can say about it. And unfortunately it comes after I miss you, which is the high point on the record. And like I said, when I got to, I miss you, I got very excited because I thought, you know, we're getting that core Alice Cooper group sound back. And then he immediately followed this up with a ballad that I mistook for an overblown intro to another song. And an overblow intro to another song that, while it has a pretty cool title, Love is Rather Blind, also falls into that dangerous, in my opinion, forgettable category. It's almost a synth pop. Uh, you get, so Bob Dolan was, who's actually quite quite an accomplished studio musician and from all accounts, a very nice guy from what I could could read on uh, the various things. But he, he gets a lot of action on this album. Uh, he gets a lot of action on this song. Not a lot that's memorable about it. There is almost a little bit of a who-like quality to some of it, which always I'm open to that. I like that. But yeah, just just not a big bell ringer for me. But on the relative sense, I guess 
a relative basis, maybe one of the stronger tracks, but nothing like I Miss You. It's not a bad song per se. I was so I was Googling this particular track because I was trying to see if, you know, what was, I, I figured something was wrong with the track listing. And I couldn't find a good track listing for this for a while. And so I, I was like, okay, well, let me Google the song and see if I can get a track length for I Miss You and for Love is Rather Blind and see if one of them is crazy long. Otherwise, you know, maybe I'm missing a title in between. There's apparently many, many songs from a wide variety of artists with this exact same title, Love is Rather Blind. So if you're Googling this song, (laughs) you're going to have a hard time finding the Billion Dollar Babies version of this. Other than that, and that's actually my only note on it. So Kelly said it's sort of forgettable. My note on it, is that it was difficult to Google. As was most of this album. Well, yeah, to be fair. But yeah, that one in particular. And then, so the next one gets weird too. Rock and Roll Radio. This is another song that, for it to have a fighting chance, needed Alice Cooper to be singing (laughs) this song. It does appear that Michael Bruce was possessed by Ace Frehley, uh, the lyrical side of Ace Frehley, when uh, it kind of starts off with, it was my favorite song on my favorite station, It's Bigger Than King Kong. That's Ace Frehley lyrics right there. (laughs) That is... That's Ace stuff, but without the really kind of amazing uh, music that Ace brings uh, brings to the table on on a solo album. It is. It tries to be, and I think is relatively successful being anthemic. Uh, you know, you've got from you know when they kind of do the city name check piece, it's got a nice little rhythm to it from there. But another one that was very confusing to me because as I was doing various Google and YouTube searches on rock and roll radio, Neil Smith came up. Neil Smith, Platinum God came up. Then I listened to a track that said Neil Smith, Platinum God on YouTube. And it was this track. And so I got confused. And then I went back and that's where I started to go. When was Platinum God released? 75 or 99? So still fuzzy on that. But actually Rock and Roll Radio is a track on Platinum God as well. So I'm not sure if it's the same version or not. You know, Alice could make It's Bigger Than King Kong passable as a lyrical construct. Michael Bruce can't. I feel like when I was listening to this, I was like, if the Alice Cooper group had stayed together, but waned significantly in popularity and became like one of those like heritage nostalgia acts that does long Vegas residencies before that was cool. Like I know that I know there's bands doing Vegas residencies now making tons and tons of money. But like back when that was like what happened to artists who couldn't make it touring anymore, I feel like this would be like the big number in their Vegas show. But their yeah, Vegas or, show, their Vegas yeah. show in like the afternoon in the cocktail lounge. Yeah, or playing a, a corporate conference gig that <laughs> they were the band at the end of the night. Yeah, state fairs, corporate conference gigs. This was it. So like I said, it had there. There are moments, there are hints that this this could have been maybe something a little bit special. Uh, just kind of again fell a little flat. So then we moved to Dance With Me. This is one, so I took notes on it. You know, I listened to it on the vinyl a long time ago. I listened to it on the re-listens here to get ready for the show. Before Mike and I got together tonight, I went back and listened to it again to kind of refresh myself on my notes. And I still can't remember this damn song. <laughs> this is an incredibly forgettable song for me. I do think it's probably, and according to my notes, I'm going to trust them, it might be the most genuinely energetic song on the album. But man, I can't get anything of this song. Every of the other songs, elements of them stick with me. There's nothing on this song that sticks with me. And I, I, as soon as I hear it, I forget it. That's probably not a good sign. <laughs> yeah. So th- this song for me sort of 
it has a feel of like a 1950s rock and roll song and part of that could be again heavy reliance on keys it's like a 1950s rock and roll song that they tried to update with some of that detroit rock sound i'll have to trust you on that because i can't remember it <laughs> so. that was pretty accurate okay <laughs> i believe you I'll, I'll trust you on that so then we move into rock me slowly uh, another ballad probably in my opinion the best vocal performance by michael bruce on this album it's got kind of the what becomes the alice solo ballad mojo to it almost a i never cry vibe passable song not bad I don't I don't uh, dislike it. I think kind of of this album for a ballad. I mean, it's 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 a it's a decent song from there. And like I said, I do think Michael Bruce does the, his best vocals on this song. Yeah, my note on this is Alice Ballad. This you you nailed it. This feels like it could have been one of the ballads like they wrote this for an Alice solo record for his, his, what became his uh, traditional ballad spot on the record for a while there. So now we're going to move into kind of a suite that ends the album. So the, I think the fundamental concept was, again, different kinds of music fighting it out against each other with rock and roll prevailing at the end. So there's that piece kind of going on. And so this suite that begins to cover that begins with Eagle Mania, which is an instrumental. It gets to turn Michael Bruce and uh, Mike Marconi loose on, on guitar. So I think it's actually some of the best guitar work on the album. And it's just kind of that introductory piece, but it is, we are definitely heading down the road to prog rock and synth rock and lots of other kind of arena things with this, but at a minimum, egomania lets the guitars take a little more center stage. So at the beginning of this, like Kelly said, this all sort of works together as sort of a suite from here to the end of the record, hearing the live, what the live show consisted of the few that happened it makes perfect sense. You can totally see where they were going with this. However, Egomania has some great, great guitar stuff on it. I wouldn't say as a track it stands up to I Miss You, but it's easily the best guitar work on the album. A lot of the leads and solos and stuff that are happening on this are excellent. Then <laughs> the rest of the suite sort of becomes everything that I wasn't a huge fan of on this record, as Kelly sort of already mentioned. Yeah, because then, yes, parachuted in <laughs> to the recording studio <laughs> and took over, and we move into Battle Axe, which you would assume would be some major guitar thrashing, but no, nope, it's high-core <laughs> progressive rock. Uh, how familiar you are with the uh, movie Rollerball, Mike? Uh, fairly. The James Conn original Rollerball. Yeah. Um, classic Rollerball. I choose to believe the LL Cool J remake doesn't exist. That, that's, I think, a good call. It's reminiscent of that, and I think some of the themes and the costuming here and all that is also not entirely far from Rollerball. But you get very progressive rock on Battle Axe. You get that Rollerball kind of feel to it, huge amounts of synthesizer, and this prog rock kind of vocal thing about... I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting lyrics they're going to about, you know, see the bloodline in my family tree. That's kind of cool. But it's kind of just setting up, you know, this battle axe type of type of thing and, and kind of setting up for the big culminating battle. I mean, I get what it's trying to do to move the story along, but you look at kind of what happens in schools out when they start to kind of knit some stuff together. And it just flows a lot smoother and easier than it does here. So and particularly, it's just a little a little too keyboard heavy for me. Yeah, the the ending of this suite is everything that I wasn't crazy about on this record. Tons of keyboards. Lots of big back, backing vocals, not, you know, very dense lyrics. This is, it, it doesn't end on a particularly strong note for me. However, hearing what the live show would have consisted of, I can see where this was meant to go. 
Yeah, I mean, to a degree, it's almost like Feed My Frankenstein <laughs> that, okay, if I saw actually what was going on on the stage, you know, I would get when there are certain kind of musical spaces going on, they're like, well, I don't know how exciting this is. That's because it's a soundtrack for what's happening on the stage. And I think there's a lot of that here. Uh, it moves into then Sudden Death, which is, I don't know if it's a separate song or a continuation of Battle Axe or, or what. It's always listed parenthetically. <laughs> so a lot of synth. I think at this point we move from Rollerball to Logan's Run in terms of another movie kind of thing. Saved slightly by at the tail end of, uh, you know, and it's very, uh, you know, it's 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 solid synthesizer work, but it's just kind of not what I was after. It didn't really speak to me, but it's, I mean, it's not just, it's not bad. It's just not, doesn't ring my bell. And then um, uh, at least at the kind of end of Sudden Death, it does pull up the guitars again that we got uh, a little bit in Egomania. And uh, so that that was a nice note at the end when the guitars come in at the end, but but it was a whole lot of synth before we got to that. Yeah, I so and for anybody who thinks that I'm just shitting on synth playing, I'm a synth player, so <laughs> I, not I'm not trying to lend authority to that. Just just to say that I don't have a problem with synthesizers. I think that this proggy synth approach was so overdone at this time, and it to me it's detracting from the core Detroit rock sound that I wanted to hear on this record. Yeah, Detroit, uh, beyond being name-checked in rock and roll radio, is not a whole lot present on this album. No, unfortunately. And then it wraps up this suite with, of course, there's going to be the big battle, and rock and roll is going to come out on top. So winner, pre-Charlie Sheen, comes out as the final track. We get a billion-dollar baby's name-check in the lyrics. We get crowd cheering. Again, I don't, if, I don't know if I want to use the word forced again, but it is pretty much say, okay, so we got to declare someone a winner and kind of establish, yay. And it just, it didn't feel particularly clever or elegant as far as it put together. Okay song, nothing I'm doing backflips over to end the album. Yeah, it was an okay song. Name checks, Billion Dollar Babies, like Kelly mentioned. Again, this whole suite probably plays a lot better. Had they been an ongoing concern as a live band, and more people had seen the show, it probably would have played out better. Kelly made a great analogy that this is like listening to the live, some of the live recordings of Feed My Frankenstein, where you hear the theatrics happening without really knowing what's going on if you haven't seen an Alice show. That's what I feel like much of this suite is. Other than Egomania, you get some cool guitar stuff in the beginning, but as it progresses, it just turns into a proggy soundtrack to something you're not seeing. I think what this points out is it's so unfortunate that they went there, their other ways, because I think the, the chemistry, when you take what the individual performers, Dennis Dunaway, Michael Bruce, Neil Smith, and Alice brought to the table. And when that was mixed together, you got something that was pretty amazing. And now Alice, as his solo career has continued, has ended up doing some what I find really enjoyable and amazing things. It's a different composition than he would have gotten with these guys. And I think together, you know, together they make themselves better. And so that's, to me, the biggest disappointment on that is that you just kind of through this whole album go, you know, if Alice was in the room and if Alice was hanging on some of the vocals, it's not that he's carrying these guys, but it's just that other ingredient that could have made some of the stuff work and some of the things likely would have been reshaped a little bit. My guess is there'd been a little less synthesizer. I numerous times throughout this album kind of found myself saying like, this could have worked as an Alice Cooper group song. And it was missing that ingredient. Similar to when we went back through the albums, I placed goes to hell really low 
on my list. And, and part of that was because it just didn't feel like an Alice Cooper record to me. It wasn't a rock record or it wasn't enough of a rock record for me. So that was, you know, the corresponding to this sort of an Alice's solo career where I could be like, he really needed the Alice Cooper group on this record. And it would have came together much better for me. That's sort of what this is. They really needed Alice. I could see this being an Alice Cooper group record and that chemistry between those guys elevating this record. Yeah, I think you make a great point that if you if you kind of look from a timing standpoint, goes to hell comes go basically goes to hell comes out, and that's when they realize, oh, gigs up. <laughs> I guess we better kind of do our own thing. And so followed by Lace and Whiskey. And if you look at those two Alice albums and the the things that are missing in it, the things that are missing in it are the things that what these guys bring. And the reasons for me, Battle Axe ultimately doesn't work that great is the things that Alice could have brought to elevate battle acts absolutely and that being said i don't love goes to hell or lace and whiskey i think kelly may have placed them higher but i don't think it was significantly higher like i don't think they were top tier albums for you if i remember correctly um i was gonna say i I don't love goes to hell and lace and whiskey and while i don't think we place them in the same spots i don't think those were top tier albums for you no they they weren't i think we we had i have to go back to our stats but i I do think we probably were the most divergent on goes to hell i think you had goes to hell like bottom three yeah you you had it you had it deep and i didn't have it very high but i i didn't have it quite that deep but we were probably pretty close to dead on on lace and whiskey that's my guess yeah and and i think what you see there is as alice continued he found his own footing as a solo artist and you know made so many great classic records that we both love it's a shame that there wasn't more billion dollar babies records after this because i feel like they would have found their footing as well yeah i i really do i I think they would have but it was this whole combination of you got a bad pressing you didn't have a lot of support from your record company you're coming off of you know billion the billion dollar babies tour was featured in time magazine huge gigantic tour a lot of things going on with it so they're used to kind of this major, major thing going on. Alice takes off with goes Welcome to My Nightmare, TV special, big concert show. And they had a hard time logistically recreating. What they wanted to do was hard to replicate. So you only had the four shows. And then I just think they ran out of gas. But it would have been super interesting, you know, given a couple more rounds to see what could have come of this. Yeah. And that's really the real shame of this to me is Billion Dollar Babies could have been, you know, they they really could have found their footing like Alice did with his solo records. This this could have been an interesting thing as it progressed to kind of hear where they would have gone in a few albums with a few tours under their belt. All right, Mick, there you go. We talked about Billion Dollar Babies. I, I didn't realize you had never heard it at all, Mike. So that was... No, I knew it existed, but I never listened to it. Yeah, I, I just stumbled across it back in the day, kids, when there were record stores you could flip through in the cutout bin all of a sudden. There it sat. I was like, oh, crap, I've got to buy this. So I will uh, include links to the sick things right up on it where you'll get probably the best information about uh, this album. Backstory, because there's not a lot out there in the, in the world on this. Uh, include some YouTube links so you can listen to not only the YouTube version that Mike and I enjoyed to prep for this show, but the uh, Flint, Michigan live show one uh, as well. Uh, and it's really most of the Battle Axe album live. So it's kind of interesting. And then they kind of do alice cooper songs towards the end so that's kind of interesting to listen to so you get some goodies in the blog post folks that's all i got to say for tonight how about you uh no i think that about wraps it up unless you want to talk about something completely unrelated for a while 
Oh, tempting. Uh, but I think I'm just going to say thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Broadcast.